My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. All right, we're back here um, on the Prison Post. Welcome to the Prison Post, everybody. As you can see, there's only two of us. Normally, I have a little comment about my co-host, Jason Bryant, but today... Um, we've we've been thinking and saying, look, well, this is our 39th episode. Uh, we've put out pretty pretty much with the help of Darling New Media Studios, uh, a show every week for the last uh, who knows how many months, but 39 weeks in a row. We're pretty excited about that. And uh, one of the things we want to do is kind of go down memory lane a little bit about the story of how we all came together at Crop Organization, starting with Jason Bryant and just going over some of the going down memory lane and going back and telling some of our stories. Most of the time we have on guests from, from all, all over, all over California from the social justice and restorative justice and criminal justice reform movement. But we want to go back and tell a little bit of our story. So, uh, today it's Jason Bryant, my, my good friend. I thought it was your friend, turn. You know, I, I thought it was uh, your, I'll I go. It was your turn. I'll go. No, no. I'll be able to my hand. Yeah. We'll both go and highlight some of these stories, but I'm, but I'm willing to, that's right (laughs) so yeah we gotta we gotta go through my story and you're the first we gotta get everybody on here on the crop team and um definitely highlight the stories so okay here we are uh what 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 about this month um this month is is special for you um in terms of freedom oh this month hmm so we're in the month of march and what's today's date is it the 19th? Yes, the 19th. Oh the days are blending out here. But the, <laughs> significance, the, the significance of this month for me is that on the 27th of last year, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom commuted both mine and Ted's sentence uh, and ordered our immediate release from prison. So, yeah, pretty significant month. For me, uh, for me it's March 20th. Uh, 2019 it'll be two years for me out here mm-hmm. and like you said it feels like 10 years so mm-hmm. um, it'll mark seven 730 days and the truth is is that I spent over 7,300 days on the inside and uh, mm-hmm. here we are you know let's let's go back yeah. a little bit to 1999 you know I, uh, I was incarcerated in August of 1998 mm-hmm. and um, but for you guys it was what what month of 1999 you and our executive director, Tech Gray. Yeah. So in December of 1999, um, me and Ted, as you said, our executive director of crop uh, committed a, a series of, of horrible crimes that resulted in us receiving life sentences in prison. Um, so, you know, for me, I had an early understanding, very early, uh, that the choices that I made impacted the people who I love the most. And I came to this realization uh, on the day of my arrest, uh, I actually made it to my parents' home. And I remember, you know, it was, it was all kind of fuzzy. We had been on the run for a day and myself and Ted and our other co-defendant had been separated as we, as we fled from the police. And, uh, when I got to my parents' house, I remember it was, uh, it was, I was scared. There were helicopters in the air. You know, there were police looking for us everywhere. And I jumped over the back fence of my um, of my parents' home, and my mom was on the back porch, and she just is on the back porch. She's like, run, run, like run to, to her. You know, and I, I, when I got in there, you know, she's just saying, she said, tell me you weren't there. Tell me you weren't there. You know, I'm standing there and all black with face paint on, and, you know, I was there. I said, I was there, but I didn't kill anyone. So, you know, she obviously falls apart. My dad's just, he's, he's shocked and stoic. The police had already contacted them. And uh, so the police call and say, look, we know he's inside and we're going to ask for him to come out and surrender. My dad had went out before me to, to speak with the police. And, you know, as they're ushering me, they came down and, you know, they gunpoint handcuffed me and uh, as they're walking. How long had you, drive, how much how much time did you have with them before the police came? About five minutes, five to 10 minutes. Um, 
and I'm, you know, just to back up a little bit, I remember, I know it's like, we just started this podcast and we're going right into some heavy, deep stuff, but you know, this is a, yeah. this, is, this is really the beginning of, of, of my journey to transformation. Uh, because, because prior to this crime, I just, I had a very wasteful youth, a lot of opportunity that was squandered, a lot of love and opportunity that I just, I threw away. Um, and my transformation really began on the day of my arrest. So, you know, I apologize for getting so heavy so quick, but, uh, this is the beginning of my story. And I remember right before I stepped out to, to surrender myself to the police, you know, I, the last thing I told my mom was, you know, I love you. Uh, you know, she's in tears, but, but as the police, you know, cuffed me and began escorting me up the driveway, it was the first time in my life that I saw my father a wreck. You know, they had a bunch of neighbors out there. There were camera crews and my dad was at the edge of it all, just uh, sobbing and, uh, with heaping sob, heaving sobs, just uncontrollable sobs as he was, you know, powerless to the consequences that his son was about to face for the choices he made. You know, in that moment, I just, I, I'm 20 years old, you know, I'm crying myself and, and I'm seeing my dad cry for the first time ever. And I'm like, wow, some, I knew something right then. Like, like what I do, uh, it's not just about me. It's not just about me. So, you know, now I'm in prison. Uh, Ted and I had uh, an early understanding that because I housed black and because he's white, we would not be friends the way we were before we were incarcerated like especially on the level what four. Type of, mm-hmm. Go ahead. What type of friendship had you established before then? So in high school, you know, I moved up to Northern California. My family and I moved up to Northern California when I was 15 years old. Ted and I share the same birthday to the day. Uh, he's two years older. And four or five. Four or five. And uh, he was very much like a big brother that I never had because of a a lot of the ways that I viewed what it meant to be a man, you know, that goes all the way back to my childhood and these distorted perspectives about being tough and knowing how to fight. And, you know, I mean, it goes way back. Obviously I had kind of attached myself to, uh, to people who I viewed had the qualities that I desired that I wanted. And Ted liked me, you know, I was, I was kind of funny, uh, you know, uh, the girls kind of liked me. So it's always nice to be around a guy who, who the girls kind of like to be around, I guess. Um, but in many ways we just, we just connected on, on a lot of levels. We both like sports. I think the first time that we actually went out as friends was like, uh, to snowboard and ski together. So there's just a lot of points of connection and we clicked. Uh, Mm -hmm. so without, you know, going through all of our childhood and all of our, you know, misbehavior, uh, when we got to prison, it was made apparent to Ted primarily because the, the party politics or the antisocial prison politics for, for the white population are, are really strict, especially on the level four maximum security in the early 2000s. Um, but it was made clear that we weren't going to, to interact the way that we had before we came to prison. So for me, though, I had made the decision that I was not going to continue revisiting pain on my family. I had done it for, I'd already done it for 20 years. Like me coming to prison wasn't the first disappointment that I brought to my family. Uh, you know, I had been kicked out of high school. I'd been kicked out of the military. I had a drug, a substance abuse problem uh, that required me to go to rehab. You know, like I said, continued wastefulness of opportunities and love uh, over and over again. And, and, you know, it took this, this tragedy, this, involvement in in a heinous crime that resulted in a man losing his life for me to really understand that hey it's not just about you kid so you know uh, early 2000s the i'm sure most of our viewers know the 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 attitude in prison was one especially for people with life sentences was of despair largely there was a pervasive rhetoric that if you had a life sentence you were never getting out um, but in spite of that, I found some, some refuge in education and, you know, to my parents' credit, not mine, they never gave up on me. Uh, they were willing to finance my education, uh, through correspondence courses. So I began going to school and I kind of used that as a way to, you know, stay out of the way, like not get involved in the gang politics or, 
or the the other nefarious things that typically happen on a, on an active level four yard. And in some ways, uh, you know, the, there there seemed to be a good reception from the the brothers that I housed with. Like there was there was definitely an attitude that like, hey, this this young kid is doing the right thing, so so kind of leave him alone. Um, so that was kind of my early experience in prison. What what led you to say, you know what, I'm going to, first of all, you, I would like you to speak to how many other people were getting their education at the time first, how many other people working on their education and what was the thinking behind or what was that aha moment where, look, I'm going to immerse myself in working on my college degree. Okay. So, when, so I'm tw- now I'm 21 years old in prison. I turned 21 in County right before we transferred to prison. And, uh, like I said, I had this, no- I had this knowledge and it wasn't just me knowing that I didn't want to bring harm to my family. We were housed at a place called high desert state prison, which is in the middle of nowhere. And visits were few and far between, far between for people. Cause most people come from, you know, Los Angeles, Oakland area. So there wasn't a lot of people visiting this very rural prison in Susanville except for me. The prison was about two and a half hours from my, where my parents lived and either my mother, my father, or the combination, the combination of the two would visit every single weekend for the entire seven years that I was incarcerated at high desert. And, you know, that continued belief in me, continued support in, in, in my value and infusion of hope that someday I would be home uh, was a huge motivation for me to do right. The idea of college, of going to college, was really kind of inspired by, I was walking by a gentleman's cell one day, and he had a bunch of books stacked up to the ceiling, and, and I asked him, I said, what are all those books? I had already taken up kind of an affinity for reading in county, uh, but this guy had college books, and I said, well, what is this? He's like, well, back in the day, they had a college program. This was prior to them taking away the bog waiver or the board of governors waiver that allowed incarcerated folks to get an education. And I said, well, how do I do that? He's like, well, you can't anymore. They, they don't have it. It's not available. And I said, well, how, can I go to school in any way? And he said, well, you got to pay for it through correspondence. And then, you know, I asked my mom, she, my mom was always very big on education. My dad was big on like being responsible, being a hard worker, but my mom said, you got to go to college. Right. And, uh, so when I learned that there was an, a, a mechanism for me to actually do print based college courses, you know, I asked her to support me and uh, she was more than willing. So that's how I got involved with my early education efforts. Um, at the time, and Jay, so, mm-hmm. go ahead. I was going to say at the time I'm on a level four yard for, for the first three years of my incarceration, I was in level four. Uh, I was the only, the only person on a yard of approximately a thousand people. I want to say who was taking college courses through correspondence. And I know that because uh, I had a proctor who proctored my exams and there was nobody else. Uh, I was the only person. So that was, that was a problem unto itself. It was really a, a challenge to get, some of the materials I needed for school, whether it was a calculator for accounting, uh, because there just was no systems in place to kind of uh, make that available uh, to people who were getting their education because nobody cared. There was, like I said, there was so much despair. I was like, okay, what's there to do on the yard? And I think there's this misunderstanding out there amongst a lot of people that the state is funding um, for us to get bachelor's degrees or master's degrees. And that's really not happening. Nowadays, they have the bog waiver fee that'll cover tuition for an associate's degree. But the bachelor's degree program, and even back then when at, at some prisons like at High Desert, and there are some prisons where they don't have the college program, you're pretty much tasked with paying for it. Either your family can pay for it or if you can pay for it. Other than that, it's not happening. Jay, in your experience, uh, for, for, for our listeners out there who might be curious about college, because I've been asked this question before, do you guys have internet in there? And, 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 and is, there, is there internet access to do online, online school in this age of technology? So that question, and then also how many, paper ba- how many colleges or universities are out there offering paper-based degrees? And not paper-based degrees, but uh, a way to earn your degree through not going online and just doing it all paper-based. So, I mean, I mean, to answer your question, are you asking early two thousands? 
or if it's early 2000s, there was no internet, um, no internet, no intranet, uh, none of that was available. And when I had asked my mom to start looking at different universities that might offer print-based, print-based curriculum and coursework, yeah, -based. Um, she could only find like five in the nation, in the nation, everything yeah. else, everything else through correspondence was done online. Um, so I, I ultimately settled on a university in Colorado, Adams State University, and began working on uh, a bachelor's degree in business. My thinking at the time in my early 20s was that someday I hope to get out of prison. My parents made some pretty uh, wise decisions in, in real estate, and I, I probably need to know how to manage it in case they need my help or whatever. Uh, I mean, I'm not a great businessman, but at least I have the degree, right? <laughs> um, as yeah. far as, as, as far as today, um, they are making efforts. The bog waiver has been reinstituted. Um, and the incarcerated population does have the opportunity to pursue their, their associate's degree. And there are some institutions that are exploring different op, uh, uh, possibilities of getting bachelor's degrees as well. Um, that's, but that's at very specific locations. And they are also uh, exploring the possibility of, of uh, instituting an intranet, which is basically an, a way to facilitate educational tools on tablets through a closed system that can be like, they can receive information or, or data from the internet, but it's controlled by the institution. So they are making some, some pathways forward today in terms of technology and education. Hey, and I want to get back to your relationship with Ted and what that was like for how many years there, um, mm -hmm. having a, having a relationship with him growing up and then getting to the point of where it was then. Uh, but I just asked one more question about education by you immersing yourself, being the one person in the prison to immerse yourself in the, in college courses. What did that do for you for, you know, this, the state of where you were at your survival in prison? Did that, um, you know, how did that shape your stay while you're in the level four? So, I mean, I, I guess there's really two parts that I answer. The first part is it gave me in my youthful arrogance, a way to kind of d distinguish myself, which, I mean, that was a strategy I used, like, you know, I'm the smart kid in town type thing, um, which is really super, like I said, arrogant and just pathetic that someone who's doing life in prison thinks that, because you're getting educated, you're doing something special. That's, I want to just say that just in the spirit of authenticity. On the other side of that, I was also discovering that the more I learned, the more I could be a resource for people. And because I was able to help people with 602s, which are, you know, written complaints or uh, how to fill out medical forms or how to write a letter to their girl. I was, I was doing all of that. It's helping people with legal work language for legal work that, that the, the individuals who I was housed with had a, a level of respect and deference for me. Like they appreciated the fact that I was getting educated and in, in that way, at the very least paying it forward. But it wasn't until 2010 that I really understood the value of education. And I'll, I'll assume that we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> Most definitely. And just a little, little background for our listeners. I mean, level fours are probably, the most violent places in, in all of the prison system. I remember being 21 years old at Calipatria um, in the year 2000 as well. And it was the first time we're out playing basketball and people were out playing soccer and they had uh, stabbed somebody on the soccer field. And I remember him dropping and then everybody kind of, you know, going, trying to get as far away as possible before they called yard down. And then they called yard down and it was a 170, uh, 180 design, which means it's the yard is split in half, um, three buildings uh, on one side and then a gate in the middle of the yard and then two buildings on the other side. And I remember them having video cameras in each of the towers of each of the buildings. Mm -hmm. And then they went and looked at the camera, found the guy who did it, took the guy who was bleeding to death off the yard, got the guy who, who did it and then said, on the microphone over the speak over the yard, resume yard. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, Oh my God, you know, this, I didn't, I didn't fully understand at the time, but 
there's a certain desensitization to violence and, and murder where they just put the yard right back up. Um, so it was the first time I realized like, man, if I'm ever going to make it out of here, I need to survive. And, and so there was a little bit of, there was a lot of that feeling there where you and Ted were there and, and there were consequences to hanging out like before, sure. how much time did you actually spend together in the, and how many years were you together there? So just give a little bit of context. Um, you know, Ted and I, when I say like he was my, the big brother I never had before we came to prison, there were two separate occasions that we actually lived together. He, he graduated high school living under the roof with me and my parents. Um, we'd been to Disneyland together, you know, snowboarding, all types of stuff. Right. So, you know, thick as thieves. Uh, but when we went to prison on the level four maximum security yard, because we both chose to give ourselves over to this antisocial context of what it meant to be white and what it meant to be black in prison, we did not spend more time interacting than the 28 minutes that we've been on this call in seven years. That's insane. And what, what was the thinking behind there? I know you mentioned it about white politics and black politics, but um, I think a lot of people out here in, in society, they don't fully understand or comprehend the level of, you know, the Supreme Court has, has, has written on this, but California prisons, it's still uh, very, very segregated. Would you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I mean, the, the thinking is that, I mean, we have a, a, a very pithy uh, three, three word statement that we actually speak about in some of our work in our book. And it's how it is, how it is. Like when you come into prison, most people are steeped in a, an unquestioned assumption about how it is in here. That's how it is. Like he's black, you're white, we're enemies. And that's how it is. And, and sadly, for the most part, um, people give themselves over that way of thinking. Uh, and it's, it's really the cultivation of a culture of not only anti-socialism, hatred, and violence, but of despair, of despair, and of separation, uh, and of otherness, of otherness. And, you know, it's, you know, I can get all philosophical on it. Like, we see it out here today, just in politics. Mm-hmm. We see it in politics, like there's the red and there's the blue and, and that's how they are. And that's how it is. So it's very similar in prison, but it's in a, it's in a controlled environment where there's, there's nothing to really call your own except for these limiting perspectives that this steel table right here, this is for the Crips and this steel table about five feet away. That's the Serenos. And this one about five feet further, that's the woodpile. And that's how it is. And if you come in these areas and you're not of these factions, then you're in violation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think some people out here be like, well, why didn't you just, why don't you just break away from that? And I don't real, I don't think that many people understand like the, the almost tangibility of fear. I, I share that with family out here. Like fear runs the day in there. And it takes mm-hmm. for you, us to get to a special place in our life where we begin to, well, we can combat that. You know, there's a quote that says, uh, courage is fear that has said its prayers. And it's not so easy to be courageous when you realize that um, you might not make it out of there for taking those stands. Sure. Sure. So, so eventually uh, you get to, we, I eventually meet you in Soledad, but what was a little bit of your journey from where, where you were at in high desert with Ted? What's like the middle before I got to meet you in Soledad 2010, right? Yeah. So the, the middle is I did, so I, in 2007, my point level or, you know, my custody level because of my good behavior uh, dropped to level two. And I was actually transferred to Old Folsom State Prison. And now Old Folsom was, I mean, that was an experience unto itself. It's, I think it's the second oldest active prison in California. So it's right behind San Quentin. And, you know, it was kind of a shock. Like this was the first time that I had been in an, in an institution that was, you know, old, not only old, but largely run by the incarcerated population. And, you know, I saw a lot of crazy stuff going on there, really. I mean, like some stuff you see in the movies type stuff. I mean, literally in two years, and this is not a laughing matter, in two years, there were three legitimate homicides 
at Old Folsom, like legitimate, like people being murdered on the tier type stuff. And, uh, so, you know, that was intimidating, but I, for me, I, I kind of, uh, carved myself out a spot in, in the culinary as a clerk with the office. And again, my arrogance, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, began dealing with people and doing things that weren't in alignment with my commitment to not bring harm to my parents. And as a result of me having a cell phone, uh, I was sent to ADSEG uh, for 79 days and I was transferred, which resulted in me being moved another uh, two hours further from my mom who was aging. So it went from a two hour drive to a four hour drive for her. So, you know, I, I uh, absolutely dishonored my promise not to, to bring more harm to her by that decision I made and the consequence uh, but in 2010, well, 2009, I got to Soledad in 2009, and uh, I hit Central Yard about six months after. The first six months, they had me on North Yard when it was still um, general population. But they sent me there because they said, oh, you're, you're kind of an F up, and we don't want you on Central because Central's for the, for the, for the programming guys. So they sent me on uh, onto a different yard. But when I got to Central, I was really shocked by the culture, uh, which was drastically different than anything I'd experienced before. What type, what, what, what type would describe it? Like what was the, the major difference between the culture there and the culture that you had experienced at Folsom and high desert? So, I mean, I talked about the culture of high desert, despair, violence, and the culture of Folsom was, was similar. The, 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 the distinction between high desert and Folsom was that, in my opinion, and this was level two, Folsom was way more dangerous. And the reason why was because there were so many, what we call inside blind spots or, you know, areas that were not under supervision from correctional officers. And that's why it was so dangerous. Like you, you, there were whole corners where it was like, there's no CEOs to be seen. And, you know, you could really get hurt or, or get in some, some, some serious trouble in different areas of this prison. Soledad, on the other hand, I remember when I, when I first began rolling my property up the ramp out of R&R and entered this long co- corridor that attaches to right. all of the, the, the buildings. And I was just shocked because when they opened the door, the first thing I saw was this big old mural. And it was like this, this huge colorful. mural, colorful, you know, beautifully artistic mural that stretched yeah. the entire 200 yards, probably 400 yards in, in the circuit around this huge corridor. And it was like, to me, it looked like almost something out of a, you know, a school or, a, you know, I don't know, something like that. And, and I was like, I've heard that it's been in the Guinness world book of records. Yeah. As the longest, the longest, the longest continuous mural in the world. Yeah. And, uh, and I was just that first, off top, that was like shocking to me because I had just come off of doing eight years of time um, in facilities that were drab. The walls were drab and, you know, gray oh, yeah. and, and everything was very sterile. And, and even in Old Folsom, it was, it was still gray. It was just older, old and gray and stone. So to see that color, it was, it was, a, it was a little bit of a shock. But then to go even further, what I noticed as you know, the, the days, the months progressed, was that there was a different climate uh, among the incarcerated population. And it was, a, it was kind of a climate of like, like, basically there had been a shift in the way that the state and a lot of the citizens were, were viewing incarcerated people. And there had been a few people that were actually, who had life sentences and were granted release from Governor Schwarzenegger. And so there was this spirit in Soledad that like, hey, we can start programs. Right. We can get things going. We can work on ourselves. We can prepare ourselves for a board conversation and maybe we can go home where that did not exist before. So there was this, there was this like energy of like, there's a group over here popping up. There's a group over there popping up. And, and, and there was a lot more collaboration between ethnic groups, particularly in, 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 when we're talking about like the, the, the individuals who really wanted to go home, there was still the, the, the antisocial politics on the yard that that still happened, but there was also this new culture that was beginning to, 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 uh, to develop that was more of a spirit of collaboration and like, what, what is it going to take for us to get home? Let's, let's start some programs together. So that was refreshing. And yeah. 
Yeah, I had been at, um, uh, I shared before on the show, of course, with us, I've been there for 18 years and saw the progression uh, of Soledad. And I remember the hope that came over the line. First of all, the day that, um, what was it, the old three strikes law proposition? Was that Prop 66? Yep. In 2003 or 2000, 2003 Prop 66. That was like the saddest day because there was so much hope. Like that level two Soledad was was in the state known as the most peaceful place that you could go for someone sentenced to a life sentence who had been in 20 and 30 and 40 years. That was a place where you could go and pretty much live at peace with minimal, minimal politics. I mean, they were still there, right? But a place where there hadn't been a riot in 10 years or something like that. And then, you know, that was like the best you could hope for. And like you said, after Schwarzenegger came in and, and one and two and three and 10 different lifers started going home, that culture of hope began to spread amongst pockets there. And I think that's mm-hmm. around the time when, when we met and then eventually Ted got there as well. And when we all came together, uh, uh, do yeah. you remember or want to talk about one of those um, stories either when we met or I remember meeting him, I remember meeting you. <laughs> I want to tell it all. And how I want we, to tell it all. Uh, all right. All right. <laughs> all right. So, all right, yeah. So hold on, I'll, I'll talk. You want to talk about us meeting? You talk about yeah. This. I'll tell my story and, and, and right. you tell yours. Well, All right. um, uh, to tee it up a little, to tee it up a little bit. Um, um, you know, now nowadays, uh, Jason, what did you? You just got under two hundred recently again, and back <laughs> back on back on track with your health. I'm done. But you're I'm always a skinny guy, fast yeah. guy. <laughs> I remember you being the fastest guy in the yard. It would race anybody. Um, uh, fastest, fastest guy in football. Um, one of the best handball players on the yard. And, and people, when I tell that story now, like, you know, when I was 29 or 30 years old, I was one of the top three handball players on the yard. And people out here are like, like, so what? <laughs> like, what is it? It's not a badge of honor or anything. Who plays handball? Who knows anything about that? But in prison, handball is like the number one sport and when you got guys that have been in there 20 30 40 years and those are the ones that are the best of the best not a 29 year old a 30 year old and and me and you were in our you know well I was you were still in your 20s but I was right around 30 and I considered an honor to play for years and years to finally make it to become one of the best of the best and one of the luxuries of that yard was the handball court was not segregated at the time it went through different phases where it was there but at the time when I got to meet you and I remember playing, uh, you know, as we would say out here, I was playing on the black side because they are, the courts are still segregated. If there's six walls. You have the, the Southerner side, the black side, the white side. And there's just basically six walls where everybody knows where everybody plays. But for me, there was a lot more competition on the black side. And I remember having a partner that day sometime in 2010 and we had one, the goal is to go out there and win the whole yard. So if you got two and a half hours a yard, if you can win every game, like that was like the, one of the best days in prison, right? <laughs> it's like a whole nother, it sounds weird probably to our audience, but if you can go out there and win, you know, 18, 19 games straight, you did, you did something today. Sure. Um, tomorrow you, you live to see another day. But I remember us winning like seven or eight games in a row. And then we finally lost. And in there they have something called telly out here. They call it next. I got next, but in there they say telly. And I remember there being six or seven teams in line to play. And I remember when, right around the time when we lost our game, you and another guy came up, and I, I remember hearing somebody say, I got talent, or I got next. And then, and then after we lost, uh, the blacks that were there were saying, um, hey, man, don't go. Don't go, man. Don't, you know, don't leave. Get back in line so we can have good competition here because you always want good competition. And, um, and then I remember someone saying, man, let him go. If he wants to go, just let him go. And then, and I was real arrogant at the time in handball. And then I, you know, I, arrogance, here's arrogance. What do you say? If you spot it, you got it. So I heard that. And then I looked over and I had never seen you before. And I was like, what's, who's this guy? You know, what, what is he talking about? We talked about this on the show with Hugo and Manny a little bit, but I was like, who's this guy? I'm going to remember him. I want to feed him the next time I play him. And if I can, I want to play him one-on-one. But you were one of the best, uh, best, best on the yard as well. So I just chalked up that memory in my mind as people do in prison and just keep an eye on you. And then fast forward a little bit, a few months when you had reunited with Ted and you had been in the preliminary conversations of building an alcohol and drug state certification and counseling program at that prison. And you guys were in talks of finding those who were living transformed lives and are 
who were the movers and shakers and in making a difference and starting groups and programs and trying to get them all into a room, people who were involved in college and cared about their transformation and cared about their, you know, restoration and, and transform and, you know, rehabilitative programs and things like that. And, um, I remember, remember you guys invited me to the first meeting, the first inside solutions meeting. And you, you could talk about inside solutions in a minute. Sure. I didn't know what it was about. And you guys got up and did a presentation in one of the classrooms in education. And there was like 12 or 14 of us in a room. And I knew everybody in the room, um, but I knew you the least. And, and then you guys gave a brilliant presentation about what it would take to start a state certification, state certified uh, alcohol and drug counseling program here at this prison. Uh, not even under the umbrella of, of CDCR, like the offender mentor certification program that, that they have in Solano. Um, but uh, basically all we would need from the state is to utilize some time and space in one of the educational rooms. Anyways, I remember Ted asking me after the, after that meeting. So what did you think? In other words, what he was saying is, are you on board? You want to work with us? And I remember saying, yeah, I mean, I think it's great. And I love what you guys are saying and I want to be a part of it, but there's only one thing. Uh, there's one guy in that room that I, I don't really like him that much. <laughs> and I didn't know that you <laughs> I didn't know that you guys were co-defendants, had grew up together, <laughs> and knew each other for 20 years. And he's like, who? I said, a black guy over there. And he says, he says, who, Angelo? <laughs> Angelo <laughs> was kind of known as uh, causing problems, but I was close with Angelo. And uh, I said, no, a light-skinned guy over there. And he goes, oh, Jay? And then he goes, that's Jason. He put his arm around me, you know, Ted, uh, leader of leaders. He put his arm around me, and, and he said, you're going to love Jay. He goes, that's my brother. That's my, that's my in prison. He said, you're crying me, right? You're codependent. That's my codependent Jay. You're going to, you're going to come to love him. And I'm like, Oh man, open mouth, insert foot. Insert I'm over here talking about this guy's childhood friend, talking about his childhood friend in a way like, I don't like him. And is he supposed to be in this room? Oh, you got the wrong guy in here. I had it coming. I yeah. had it coming. But, but what, what, are your, what are your memories of, of back then? Oh, so man, so many. I remember when Ted first hit the yard, I was playing handball, uh, ironically. And I heard him call me. He's like, Jay. And he was walking laps with this tall, uh, tall guy who we came to know as Eugene Day. Brilliant man. Brilliant man. Great friend. Uh, yep. And you know, it was, it was, I remember I, I broke from the, from the handball game. I'm like, you know, give me a minute. You know, I embraced him. And, you know, in my mind at the time, it was like, okay, how are we going to interact? Like I had been there for a few months. I knew that it was a little bit more relaxed uh, as far as the, the, the way that, that ethnicities interacted with each other. Um, but I didn't know where Ted was at. The last time I had saw Ted, Ted was, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, he's pretty much, he was a shot color of, of the whites on the yard. Like he was still in that life. Um, so I had some hesitancy. And when him and Eugene, a few days later, approached me about this idea to uh, come together and figure out a way to get people certified, I resisted. I resisted initially because I was drawing from our crime the, you know, the, the damage we caused when the last time we really teamed up together. I was also drawing from, you know, seven years of basically no relationship between he and I, uh, except for a head nod or how you doing, how's the family type thing. And, you know, I would, so there was a lot of hesitancy there, but the idea uh, was so good. And, you know, Eugene is good. He's great talker and you know he was flattering me a little bit with the, I was pretty close to getting my bachelor's degree at the time I remember. yeah we need your we need your your smarts we need your ability to to help make this happen and I was like okay well that that kind of played on my arrogance and like oh uh, okay well you need me <laughs> right <laughs> so right um but, but then, by then uh by then what you by then uh you you didn't know that um at the time, I'm sure you came to know it, but he had already sp started spending some time in his own transformation through with Eugene right. at, a, at another prison. They started working yes. on themselves too. So yeah, but you I didn't, didn't know, know him as that yet. 
No, I didn't know him as that. I didn't know him as that. I didn't, I didn't even know that he had found it at this time. I'm talking about like the earliest conversation about working with him again, working with him. I didn't even know that he and his father had founded a nonprofit, the nonprofit crop organization. Uh, I think two years before, I think it was 2008 that they founded it. This was 2010 that we had the yep. first conversation. So, but you know, I, I pushed through that and uh, I began having conversations with him and Eugene and our earliest conversation was with uh, Chris Walknick. Uh, and I think Dean had came in uh, a little bit because uh, but we were in a gym. We had carved out just a little space in the gym, a little dank that, that it, there was no good lighting back then in 2010. <laughs> it was terrible lighting. And we, we came up with the name inside solutions and began having discussions about how, how we were going to build out a team of doers, a team of doers and how we were going to create this program that could really pathway people into careers and into success, not only inside of like the prison, but when they go home, like, how can we do that? So, uh, it was, it was an exciting time. There was, I mean, they, Ted and Eugene would present us with things like these huge C-Rob, huge reports, blue ribbon reports on how the state is doing programming research on OMCP, you know, what we need to know from credentialing facilities and, 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 and in our initial meeting, the one that you were referring to a, a minute ago, I was in the middle of taking a statistics class. And I remember right. it clearly because I was up at a chalkboard offering statistics to our, <laughs> to everyone that we're inviting into this work, which was so crazy to think about. Like I'm, I'm, I'm up here drawing statistics. We need to just talk about, you know, do you want to do this? And is this something you might be interested in? But uh, it was, it was really a, a lot of work. Um, and it was an incredibly, Absolutely. it was an incredibly <clears throat> unique opportunity that we had when we identified the right people. And I mean, you know, Rich, Ace Deuce, he, our heart, the heart, he'd been the heart of our team uh, since the beginning. And, you know, individuals like Matt, who were just workhorses and just so focused and such a critical thinker and such a detail-oriented individual and and, and Ted's leadership and, and some variation of my ability to execute um, different programs. You know, we, we had a lot of success. And, and at the end of the day, we you know, the, the, as the guys would say, like the goalpost keeps moving, right? <laughs> but we got 33 yeah. people, we got 33 people certified, uh, with advanced certifications in alcohol and other drug counseling. And, uh, you know, of those 33 people, 27 are paroled. All of us were lifers, but 27 have paroled and none of them ever sedated. And I mean, that's, to me, that speaks volumes. I think 15 of them are working in AOD or some variation of it. So, you know, yeah, it's, they're, it was, they're, they're serving their communities as alcohols, alcohol and drug counselors out here. They're, mm -hmm. they're living the dream. They're fulfilling the vision that was born there all those yeah. years ago about earning a certification in there that they could come out and utilize in their freedom. And I just want to say something about what, what you mentioned about, you know, the, the, the type of people that we're getting together, because that has still been our culture. And, and like you said, we're, reading these different, different manuals from the state and, and, and just researching. And like you said, a team of doers, pro social thinkers who are willing to get in there and say, I don't know how to do this, but are you willing to do it? Are you willing to put all your effort into it? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of our philosophy today that, um, that I really appreciate about you and Ted and, and Ken and Matt there. You will rarely hear the word I can't amongst mm -hmm. us. Uh, we don't want to hear, I can't We want to hear uh, how can we, Mm. What is it going to take to make it happen and pushing through? It was in there that we learned how to push through our own limitations, right. our own beliefs about our own limiting beliefs right. um, and the common excuses that people might make and, and push through them and say, um, if I'm ever going to make it out and be successful, what type of thinking do I need to have now? And so, yeah, like you said, um, um, yeah, 33 state certified alcohol and drug counselors. Um, two of them, we were on a, on a call. We weren't on a call with them, but um, we were on a call with Steve Good um, from Five Keys Charter School. Mm -hmm. And two of our alcohol and drug counselors that graduated from our program 
are working there in San Francisco. And uh, it really feels good to know that in San Francisco and Los Angeles and Riverside, uh, uh, all across the state, our guys are adding value to the communities from, you know, something that was started from a vision all those years ago. I think, I think one of the things that's like super instructive about the work that we got to do inside is that it proves the point of the work we are doing out here now is that there's a lot of value in formerly incarcerated people being hired. All they need is the opportunity, the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's what we did inside is we provided the opportunity and, you know, there's just so much great work we did inside that there's no way we could cover in the scope of an hour from uh, our leadership trainings with uh, Cornerstone and Jesse. I mean, that's, that's an hour unto itself for me. It was one of the most impactful programs in my life. And it's a big reason why we've incorporated into our program out here, the personal leadership development uh, to the work we've done. We did with Hartnell community college. And you think about all the students, hundreds of students that, uh, you know, we we were in conversation with deans and, and, uh, and presidents of of the school. You remember the salt training? It was a student, student affair liaison team or something, but it was, you know, we were, it was kind of intimidating. It was literally me, you, Ted, and Matt that delivered a one-day leadership training to, uh, to you know, MBAs uh, while we're in prison. That was yeah, and doctors. remarkable. And doctors, that's remarkable. Deans and I mean, deans and presidents of the college. Mm-hmm. To I mean, you know, so little shameless plug. Don't, don't forget our book that we published inside, uh, Men Bill for Others, yeah. and and of course the scholarship, which is has brought so much. Uh, so much publicity, let's, I guess, is that the right word? But let's let's spend some time. Uh, we have about fourteen minutes here, mm-hmm. so you know we went through a, we went through a, the Cornerstone Project to become transformational coaches to learn what it takes to become a coach. Um, started utilizing those trainings with community colleges and also with our our program on Friday nights to do vision building inside of the inside of the prison. Uh, we always had a. Um, a gym full of people, hundred people, because mm-hmm. people wanted to take part in our in our training program, and and that was where we were where we were learning. Uh, you know what it takes to to work with one another, what it takes to build a vision, what it takes to to call call to live from a future worth having. You know to to think about who do I want to be, what do I want to do in the future, and what are the steps that I could take today to actually get there. Um, most of the time, a lot of the programs in prison, they just deal with the past, you know, they just deal with the trauma and that's important, but I think what's even more important or simultaneously important is some avenue where you can goal set and vision cast, uh, for the future. So all of that culminated with, um, with us, um, uh, eventually writing the book men built for others. Um, if, if, for those of you out there who want to purchase it, it's on Amazon, if you read that introduction and preface, uh, preface, <laughs> um, that was something that um, uh, Jason and, and Ted had spent many hours writing, and it talks about the culture we were experiencing at the time. And then eventually that culminated with us meeting Jim Micheletti and Mia Mirasu and working with the Exercise and Empathy Palma program. And then uh, pick up right there, Jay, with your experience uh because we've never really had you share too much about what your experience was when Lisa Ling came there and, and um, you actually became the first lifer that we ever heard of uh, to be able to leave the prison. Um, And even though it was shackled, but you got to leave and go to Palma to speak. So that was a, I mean, that was a really 2019 was a crazy year for me. Crazy. It started out with me believing that I was going to receive some relief under a changed law called 1437, which basically says that if you did not actually shoot someone, then you should not be charged with murder. That's the, that's the short version of the law. And since I wasn't this shooter, I believe that I qualified. So the whole first part of my year in 2019 was I just had my, my son was just born, uh, my son Jackson was born on January 11th of 2019. And I was under this, you know, hopeful expectation that I would be coming home to my wife and my newborn son. And uh, it, it wasn't until September that I found out that the judge denied me uh, 
all in between that time, it was just a period of like, you know, submitting briefs and hear arguments. And then ultimately he decided that I didn't qualify. I also found out towards the end of 2019 that while I was granted, um, uh, 1170D from the secretary of, of CDCR, who basically 1170D basically said that my behavior was so exemplary in prison that I, it no longer was in the interest of justice for me to be in prison, that the same judge denied that as well and said, I, because it was at the judge's discretion. It doesn't matter that the secretary says that you're not, you're not a danger to society. I don't care. Stay in prison. So that was the context of 2019. Great. Started out great. My son's born, changed my life, you know, gave me real purpose I mean, the most profound purpose I've ever known. And then subsequent, you know, disappointment and disappointment uh, with uh, 1437 and 1170 respectively. Right. And, then in and then in December, I call my buddy Rich and he tells me, he's like, Jay, I, I'm, I'm having some conversations and get ready. You need to go to the Palma Exercises and Empathy because some directors are going to talk to you from CNN and Lisa Ling's going to come in and do a show. So that's how the year ended. Like me knowing that on January 8th, uh, CNN and Lisa Ling were going to come in and film. And, you know, I, I had to represent, I got to, I didn't have to, I got to represent the work that me and you and Ted and Matt had been doing for so long because I was the only one that was left. Ted had transferred to San, San Quentin, Matt and you had already paroled, and I was there to tell the story. Yeah. So, I mean, how much time we have? I'm glad it was you. <laughs> we got nine, we got I'm eight minutes left. Glad it was so, you. so look, I'll share this. I'll say this. You know, a, a lot of people have seen the episode and, and appreciate it, which I'm grateful for. Um, I'm grateful that I was able to tell the story in a way that is in some way impactful and, and and maybe compelling in some ways uh to to viewers uh but for anyone who's ever done time in prison it's it's hard to put into words the level of discomfort that is involved when you walk into a chow hall where there's 500 people that you know, are largely, even though like many people are on the road to transformation, they're still very much locked in the, the world of how it is. But to walk into a chow hall with a camera, two cameras and a boom in your face, um, the, 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 the level of criticism I received uh, was hard to bear at times. Uh, and a lot of it was stuff that I just would hear um, from around the back. Like, is he tough? Who is he? Who the heck is he? Who is he to speak for us? He ain't nobody from nowhere. Is he talking about the food we're getting? Is he talking about that we're not getting yard? Is he talking about three strikes? You know, um, so there was, a, there was a high level of criticism, high level of criticism, um, which I, you know, I shouldered uh, because the mission was to, to, to show the world that there's something more than the stereotypical image of a prisoner like there's potential for people to transform their lives and add value in substantial ways which was reflected through the effort in raising that money for scion uh so it, it wasn't easy um it was an honor because it had to be done that's that's work that has to be done people have to understand that that those are human beings behind those walls and those razor wire fences and it's and that a lot of those human beings just need an opportunity to do something good and they'll take, they'll seize that opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. What about um, after it came out uh, on TV? By the way, it's season seven, episode one, prison to prep school, right? Mm -hmm. And um, you can find it on YouTube, CNN, CNN Go. I mean, Lisa Ling uh, is a tremendous person. Would you speak to a little bit, Jay, your experience talking with her and even today you, know, you have a, a friendship and the impact that she's made on your life long, long term? Lisa, Lisa is uh, one of the most magnanimous and impressive leaders that I've ever encountered. Uh, for the eight days that they shot the documentary at the prison, uh, she was no less than generous and compassionate 
not only with me, but with every single person she encountered. She had a, a crew of seven individuals uh, from cameramen, directors, producers, uh, sound people uh, who related to her. Like when she walked in the room and she said something, everybody knew she was in charge, but she never showed up like she was in charge. Mm-hmm. It was always a question. It was always a question, always a question about what people thought, always a question about what might be best. And then her responses were always given in a way that was mo- that was just so inviting and people just were like, of course. So I was thoroughly impressed by the way she carried herself um, as a leader, as a human being. She's uh, one of the finest people I've ever known. Um, her heart for others, her heart for what is right is, is something that I find to be most, uh, most virtuous. Uh, and I've just been, you know, blessed to, to, to know her and to, to develop a friendship with her and, and support her work and, and receive her support as well. Well, when you say she's one of the most finest people, you know, you know, I'll, I'll we got a few minutes left here, Jay. I'll say it, it takes one to know one. I know mm-hmm. about your work now as a director of restorative programs or crop organization, all of the work that goes into doing what you do, the many hours, and um, it, it's really remarkable what you've done. But I think the, the thing that I always share with my family and friends and others is that to come out after uh, 20, over 20 years and to come into um, your marriage and the, the, your being a dad, I always say that, I mean, I've never, I never saw a dad growing up uh, up until I went to prison at the age of 20. And even out here today, that loves his sons the way you do. And, uh, to me, that's the, the most uh, impressive thing about you. And, um, I, I think they're going to be brilliant and do whatever they want in this world, you know, Thank you. uh, because of the way that you and Sandy, uh, love them and invest in them and play with them and guide them and help them in the way they think. It's really, um, it's, it's unprecedented in my mind to see it. It's just a beautiful thing. I get emotional uh, thinking about it. Jay, um, this next week we have an event coming up, our kickoff event. Um, mm-hmm. Would you speak to that in the last couple of minutes for those uh, that might uh, want to come to our website and qualify? What do they need to do? Sure. So on um, March 26th, between 7 and 8.30, we're going to be unveiling our signature program, Ready for Life. Uh, it's going to be a kickoff event where we're going to spend an hour and a half kind of talking about our story, our work, our vision for equipping returning citizens to thrive upon reentry into the community. Uh, it's, so it's everyone's welcome. You can go to our website, um, croporganization.org. Uh, you can establish a login and register, register for the event. And, and it should be great community experience. So we have some speakers, not only a uh, crop organization, but some of our partners from beneficial bank checker, um, uh, over Moro group and code tenderloin. They're going to talk a little bit about their contributions to the program. And it's going to be a really remarkable and unique opportunity for our first cohort to receive some, some first rate training in, in mindset, skill set, employment opportunities, and, and, and some housing connections that's going to, really change the game when it comes to reentry. That's, that's my belief. So uh, please find us on croporganization.org and, and sign up. I definitely go on, go on, sign up, hit that register button. And um, if you're uh, wanting to fill out an application, what do they need to do? Well, to fill out an application, it's once you've, once you've registered, or oh, you don't have to register to do the application, but you do need to create a login. And there's a button right underneath the event that says apply here or application. And you just fill it, submit the application. We'll be reviewing them uh, starting the 29th. And then we will be calling, uh, uh, scheduling uh, interviews uh, in the subsequent weeks. Uh, the program will launch on May 3rd. May 3rd is the launch date. All right. We're excited. All right. Well, Jason, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, like you said, we could have talked for hours and hours upon each of those topics or bullet points, but uh, definitely giving a glimpse into a lot of our listeners about our relationship and life coming together 
for crop, uh, I'm willing to go next and uh, we'll get some All of right. our other brothers on here to tell their story and fill in the blanks of, of our story, you know? So I think it's important to share how we got to where we got and the vision that we have today to provide jobs in tech for formerly incarcerated people um, to make a livable wage and to succeed out here as returning community members. Um, Crop Organizations uh, podcast is the Prison Post. We thank you for joining us today. Um, you can check a Crop Organization out across all of social media. Type in hashtag Crop Organization or creating restorative opportunities and programs as well as the Prison Post. And you can find us and listen to our shows. Uh, please subscribe on YouTube and follow us on on. Um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the major places where you listen to podcasts. Thank you again for attending. Uh, it's good to be with you again, Jason. Of course. All right, bro. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.